0: Father, we agree with those prayers and do commit all these things to you, knowing that as was prayed, you are gracious, you are good, you are sovereign, you deal with us individually, we praise you for that, and at the same time, you have total control over every electron in the universe. So we just praise you, desire to worship you today, desire to understand your word and be clear be motivated to share it with others, particularly unbelievers that need your righteousness, that need your your grace. So as we look into your book of Romans, that you might illumine our minds and our hearts to better understand it, to be more effective for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, it's good to be back in the book of Romans. I want to thank Bill again and Terry and Craig and Jeremy for helping while I was gone. And we haven't been in the book of Romans in a while, so what I'd like to do today is give you a quick reminder of what we've looked at by developing the context of the passage. We're also in a new subsection, so it'll serve as a little bit of an introduction to chapter 4. And then uh, I want to give you kind of an overview of chapter 4 so you have the broad context of that chapter, see what's going on, and then we'll look at verse 1 and see how far we make it. And hopefully, I'm sure we'll get to at least verse 3. Maybe. We'll see. So, the book of Romans. The reason I show slides and sites, archaeological sites, and by the way, we're going to have an Israel meeting this afternoon And the reason you want to take a trip to Israel is because what we're dealing with are real people, real history, real events that took place in real places. And the more familiar you are with the geography, the background, the history, it enhances and helps you to put biblical passages in their historical, cultural, geographical context. So it enhances your understanding of God's Word. So just a couple of sites from Rome. One of the sites we will hopefully, Lord willing, visit, Circus Maximus. They had uh, athletics like they do today. It was very popular, very culturally part of the lives of people in Rome. And Paul uses analogies using athletics. So not too much different. Real people, real places, real events. And by the way, when God reveals himself, he reveals himself in the context of history and geography. So doctrine, you say, is not, it's not detached from these events. So doctrine is associated with things that God did in the past in history. So these are important things to consider. So just a quick reminder, we're Looking at the provision of God's righteousness, that's the overall major section in the book of Romans, running all the way to the end of chapter 8, after an introduction, we've completed looking at the need for righteousness. There's a universal need, that's the point that Paul made. Everyone falls short, everyone is depraved, everyone is lost everyone that tries to please god by their own efforts cannot do that it's totally impossible because the standard of righteousness is too high humanly impossible to reach so that condemns all of humanity to lostness and separateness from god we spend a lot of time looking at that we're in the other the next major s- subdivision justification Chapter 3, 21, and that'll run all the way through chapter 5, the end of chapter 5. And I'll give you an overview of that in a moment as well. And when we talk about justification, this is the provision that God made. Now, Paul is using theological terms because he's writing to believers. The unbeliever doesn't have a clue what justification is. So it's, this is for a believer in order that the believer understand soteriology, or the doctrine dealing with salvation. And when we are better in a place to understand God's means and God's ways of bringing people to himself, then we're in a position to better minister to a lost and desperate (coughs) world. Honey, honey.
1: You say the nominal justification, but just that I'm saying that terms are embedded in the society. So yes. Is it not still a. Yes,
0: yeah, that's what we've been stressing. These are all of the theological terms of the Bible come out of the culture. So that's the bridge that you can use to explain these ideas. But, you know, you don't come up to an unbeliever, you just blast out. You are totally depraved, which is true. You need God's justification. You know They're knocked overboard when you tell them about depravity. They have no concept of what that is, so you put it in words they can understand, and you don't talk about necessarily justification and explain all of the details of it, but you explain in a way that they can understand that they have a need and God has provided a means to have an experience with him. But we understand the concept of justification and looked at it in some detail. So the provision is in the central passage of all of the book of Romans, chapter 3, 21 through 26. That's just one complicated sentence that an unbeliever can't navigate. In fact, most believers have trouble navigating through it. So we spent six weeks on that one sentence. So it's got a lot of parts to it. So we spent a lot of time there. And then after that, he emphasizes the priority after he talks about this provision that God has made. God has made a way that lost humanity can have a relationship with him. That's justification. And there's a priority of justification. You come by faith. That's the emphasis. No works. That's 27 through 31. And that brings us to the passage that we'll begin today, chapter 4. There's a pattern for it. If you lived in the first century and you were particularly Jewish, you had a concept of God's righteousness and God's justification if you were Jewish, and you assumed that Abraham was justified by works. In fact, that was a common belief in the first century. That was what uh, Jesus and Paul had to overturn. It was not much different than the idea today that people think that, well, if I go to church enough, if I maybe uh, do some good works, they're going to overshadow my lostness or my unrighteousness. Same idea, except from a Jewish perspective obedience to the law. Justification by
1: works. By his works, and yeah. what he did because he did right. all this stuff, he was justified in. Right. That's not the case. His that's right. It was that he flat out believed God.
0: Exactly. Yeah, the concept in the first century, the assumption was just that Abraham was justified by works, by his character, by who he was. God saw the only person on the face of the earth that was righteous, called him to himself, and chose to use him. That was the basic concept. You
1: know, in Isaiah 63, I think it's, we're told that even our best efforts are
0: like a filthy rags. That's Isaiah what is it, 17 or something? Yeah. Our righteousness, yeah, this is all in the Old Testament, but it was misconstrued, misinterpreted, misunderstood, and Isaiah does categorize the very, very best works that we can produce are like menstrual rags. That's our righteousness. That's why we stand condemned, because we can't meet God's standard of
1: righteousness. Well, speaking for myself, I don't think I ever did. Because I always expected something. Do even better just, than Abraham. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> even if it was just for a chance to say, "This is why I have so much problem with my elbow." Even if it was just for a chance to self on the back and say, "What a fine fellow I am!" I took time out of my busy schedule to help that poor little old lady cross the street.
0: Yeah, yep. But it's filthy rights. Yes. So we have the provision. In other words, God made a way. It's by grace we receive it through faith. That's the priority. And then in chapter 4, he's going to, primarily for a first century audience, well, where do you find that in the Old Testament would be the question. And Paul says, well, there's a pattern in the Old Testament that begins with the first Jew, Abraham himself. So he comes up with the best example that he can mention, and he uses scripture to validate it, and that's what the passage deals with. So the pattern, the Old Testament pattern of justification is the same as New Testament. Justification in the Old Testament has always been by faith and faith alone. Not just starting with Abraham. He's the example, the clear example. But you would have to come to the same conclusion concerning Adam. You'd have the same conclusion concerning Enoch. The same concern concerning Noah. Noah. All the way up to uh, Abraham, Elijah, well, he's later. Yep. So the first 12 verses, let me give you kind of a summary of them. We have the justification of Abraham. In other words, how was Abraham justified? So that's what he's going to argue. And Abraham is the primary character there. And what about the covenant? Isn't the covenant requiring certain... Actions, obedience. Well, he's going to argue that the covenant of Abraham, Abraham had nothing to do with it as well. He just received it by faith and trusted that God would fulfill what he promised in the Abrahamic covenant. So 13 through 25, two parts of the chapter, you can break it into two parts, uh, deals with the covenant of Abraham. So the pattern that we have for justification by faith, including the most important covenant, is the need, and the necessity to enter by faith and faith alone, not dependent on anything man does. And that's the Abrahamic covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. Man comes by faith and by faith alone. It's totally dependent on what God has provided. So that's the pattern. And then uh, this section ends in chapter 5. What are the benefits or what How do you profit from justification? What do you get from it? And by the way, when we get there, this would be the ideal chapter. If you were to lose justification, that would be the place in the book of Romans to put the passage to say, but be careful, If you don't live right, you're going to lose it. Mm -hmm. That's the Arminian perspective, but you don't find that. In fact, what you have is the glorious aspects that pertain to the benefits, if you will, or the profit. justification. That's chapter 5. And then, I don't have it on the slide, but beginning in chapter 6, how do you live it out? In other words, if we are declared, as we've been saying, righteous on the basis of things outside of ourselves, and it's a free gift, and there's nothing that is required, then does that mean we can live any way that we want to? Well, That has implications. We're not made righteous. We are declared righteous. That's going to be stressed in chapter 4 again, as we stressed it in 3, 21 through 26. Well, by what principles? We're going to find out it's the same principles as we receive it. We live it out. And that begins in chapter 6 through chapter 8. And we have supernatural enablement. To be able to grow and become more and more like Christ or more and more righteous. So 6 through 8 is how do we grow in righteousness. We call that sanctification. I don't have it on the slide there, but that's the next part. So let's break down uh, verses 1 through 8 in chapter 4. And if you break them down, how is Abraham justified? It's justified by faith. That's verses 1 through 8. And, breaking it down even further, 4 through 5, we have the experience. He's going to ask a question. Well, what about Abraham? How was he justified? What's the deal with Abraham? Let's go back to him. Let's go back to the Old Testament. What's the pattern in the Old Testament? What's his experience? 1 through 5. And the first thing that we have in verse 4 is a question. And by the way, if you look at the, the bottom of the sheet, towards the bottom there, we also have a confirmation from another very, very important Old Testament character, the most prominent of kings, the major king, you might say, of the Old Testament, king of Israel, David. And it confirms it. And putting the two together, if you put the two together, we have the experience of Abraham, we have imputation of righteousness. In other words, it's put to our account, And remember, justification has two aspects. What was the first aspect? Two aspects. No, in terms of in what's involved, what do we receive with justification?
1: Two things.
0: That's the second one. That's righteousness. Look at your outline. What did David say? What does David confirm? Forgiveness of sins. Remember are two aspects. And that's what David proclaims out of the Psalm that is quoted in that passage. So we'll get we'll get to that. Well, let's start with verse 1, and we'll develop it in a little bit more detail. So he asks the question, what then shall we say? In other words, this is, is this radical? Is this something that uh, is totally new? Out of, out of nowhere did I just come up with this idea myself? What can we say? Is there any support for this concept of justification by faith, faith alone? On the basis of grace and grace alone and no works, no works of the law. This sounds pretty radical. Are you starting a new cult, Paul? (laughs) Yeah. What shall we say then? Well, then he's going to begin to answer that. But let's develop the context. He has already promised that the Old Testament contains the gospel. Notice what it says. Somebody read verses 1 and 2 in the book of Romans. He starts the whole book mentioning the gospel. That's the heart. He's dealing with soteriology in this book. And how does he begin? Somebody read the verse 1, 1, and 2.
1: Paul, a servant of Jesus, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised be through his prophets.
0: Okay. An apostle set apart for the gospel of God. This is the very first verse. This is what he's going to deal with throughout. But what does he say in verse 2? Promised beforehand, that gospel that he's talking about, that he expanded in 321 through 26, that message is what? Promised it beforehand. And he, what he's talking about? Uh, by the holy scriptures. What were the scriptures in Paul's day? The Torah. Yeah, the Old Testament. Yeah, the Torah, the Old Testament. He's already introduced it in the very beginning of the, the letter. He also, beginning in that section where he's going to give us the provision of God's righteousness, somebody read 321. Remember that one?
1: But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets.
0: It's apart from the law. In other words, there's nothing that you can do, no obedience, but... It's not against the law, but actually the law witnesses to it. So now in chapter 4, he's going to lay out that witness, or at least part of it, at least a most important aspect of that witness. So he's already built up this idea that this is not a cult. This is not anything new. This is Old Testament theology. This is Old Testament ideas. So we've already talked about these key terms. And in that passage, I'm going to remind you of key terms here. We talked about the law in that passage. It's used in two ways It's to the reference to the whole Old Testament. And more specifically, when it says law and prophets, it refers in that specific context to the Pentateuch. Because he talks about the law, first five books, and the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets. So the context, he's it's witnessed by the Old Testament. And he's talking about in chapter 3, 21, this righteousness that is provided by grace. And I've been talking about that already. So we have these theological terms that we've already defined, that we've looked at, and particularly in this passage, it's full of them. Now, we've looked at some of them already before we get to the passage, particularly the idea of righteousness. There's a difference between God's righteousness and man's. Man's best efforts are like filthy rags. (laughs) God's righteousness is a high standard. It's the righteousness of God Himself. So that is the standard that God expects, and He expects perfection. No one can abide we want
1: by us that. To put our sins deepest ocean, yep. separate them as far as the east is from the west. Yep.
0: exactly. And
1: I like, kind of like someone someday on. Is it possible that it's impossible that that on that on Judgment. There might be somebody who's done more good deeds
0: than bad deeds. That's right. And from our perspective, we always grade things on the basis of the curve. Yes. And you can always find somebody that has less righteous acts and is more unrighteous than us. So we put ourselves five. above yeah. them. That
1: look pretty good next to that guy.
0: That's right. But on our own, yeah. from God's perspective, and that's one of the things that we're going to bring out here. What I'm doing here is This guy's good deeds and pure bad deeds
1: might be saying, How come it's possible that he's lost forever? He might tell Jesus, Now what's with this what what kind of of uh, justice is this? Now, I did more good deeds and fewer bad deeds than Ross Scott. Yeah, Ross Scott's been promising church and glory, and I've been condemned to send i life. My life with Russ Scott over there. I did more good deeds and fewer bad deeds than geese. No perfection. I don't remember any bad deeds that he ever did. And this guy's so kidding. Yep. Jesus going to say, "I washed his sins." Right. I wiped him out of my.
0: And nobody met the standard. The standard is God's standard, Himself. In other words, perfection, and righteousness in terms of man is a right standing before God that is unattainable and has to be provided by God's justification, which includes forgiveness of sin, and a declaring, not a making yet, but a declaring of righteous. We're still sinners. We still have depravity. We still have the old nature. But we stand before God as if we have no sin, because we're forgiven. We go scot-free. That's the courtroom situation. The criminal is just as guilty before the judge, before he walks into the courtroom as he is after when he is declared innocent or he's acquitted because somebody else paid the penalty so he doesn't have to go to prison. He's still guilty, but he the slate has been wiped clean. That's what we're going to get into in Chapter 4. It's by, by grace. We've talked a lot about it. It's undeserved favor. And he also mentions it's through the means of redemption. In other words, a price was paid, a ransom was paid for the sins. A buying out of slavery, there was no way that we could escape. That's redemption. Christ paid the price. And at the bottom there, propitiation. God is satisfied with that payment. It meets all of God's legal demands. God is satisfied. God, you could say, is propitiated. Theological term. Remember, these are all theological terms written to a believer to help them understand. Okay, so we have the Old Testament promise. It's witnessed by the Old Testament. It's a righteousness by grace and grace alone. God is satisfied. God has provided it. And it excludes boasting, that's 327 when he's talking about the priority. It's by faith, so it excludes boasting. And what is he talking about in this passage? Can Abraham boast? No, Abraham can't boast, so Abraham receives it on the same basis. And in verse 30, it's a justification of both Jew and Gentile. And the Jew might say, well, I'm justified by obeying the law. If He's already missed that you can't do that. He still will retain that. That's uh, 3.30. And then now in 4, what then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, in other words, the one that God promised a nation to, and that we are part of that nation, we Jews, what shall we say? You and I as fellow Jewish people, we, other apostles that are Jewish as well, what shall we say, Abraham, according to the flesh, in other words, biologically, genetically, humanly, in terms of material descent, the line of Abraham that goes through Isaac and then Jacob, that Abraham, our forefather, what has he found? Well, Abraham is the prime example because of several things. He's called the friend of God, so he has a relationship with God. Uh, you can read that in Isaiah 41, 8 in the New Testament. I think James is alluding to the Isaiah passage, and by the way, it occurs in another passage as well, where Abraham is referred to as friend of God, so there's a personal relationship. It's in contrast to the nations in chapter 12. Because the nations are rejected, the world system is rejected, God is going to call an individual to himself, enter into a relationship, a relationship that includes friendship. That friendship means Abraham is a friend of God. James, I think, is is summarizing an Old Testament passage or a couple of them. Several times in the Old Testament we have references to God and that relationship the god that is of abraham and the exodus 3:16 goes on abraham isaac and jacob in other words there's a lineage that's going to end in a nation that god is going to put in prominence amongst all of the other nations and eventually has a plan that has not been completed that will be fulfilled in the future still they're set aside temporarily but they are a called people, and Abraham is at the head of that calling. We also know from the New Testament that true believers, Galatians 3, seven we are in the spiritual line of Abraham. He is our spiritual father. So the spiritual father and the material and lineal father is a prime example of the Old Testament relating to both Jew and Gentile. Abraham is the father of the nation by lineage, by biology you might even say, but he is also a father of those within the nation that have a heart response, believers, and it extends to Gentiles in the church age. We enter into that As part of the Abrahamic covenant, we receive that blessing that is promised through Abraham, through the nation of Israel. So Galatians 3.7 kind of captures that idea. And Hebrews emphasizes the the one in uh, the whole chapter that is given more verses than any other character is Abraham. We have several examples of Abraham as a man of faith. Hebrews 11, 8 through 19, several verses. So he's known amongst Jews as a man of faith. So this is a prime example. And in this context, he's the father of the nation, (laughs) forefather, father of the nation. So he's the greatest example of justification by faith. That's what he's going to develop. Now, he could have used others as well, but Abraham is a prime and perhaps the greatest example. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to flesh, what has he found? Now he's going to develop. Abraham came to justification by faith. That's the essence of it. So that's the question on Abraham's experience. What what did he find? Now he's going to give the answer in verses 2 and 3. What is the means of Abraham's justification? The means is by faith. The same grace that is offered to Gentiles that he's expounded upon earlier, Abraham experienced the same thing. So salvation in the Old Testament is the same. In fact, salvation has always been the same. It's never changed. Now the object of the faith has changed, but the experience is not, and the provision has not, and the means has not. It's always been by faith, and Abraham is the example. So in 2, 3, or 4, 4, 1, and 2, verse 2, 4, here's the answer. If Abraham, now he's going to kind of argue like a debater. He's going to set a premise. For if Abraham, and by the way, this is a first-class condition. A first-class condition in the Greek language does not say that the premise is true, because in this case it's not true, but for the sake of argument, let's assume that it's true and work it out. So it's a first-class condition saying, let's assume that Abraham was justified by works. If that is the case, then what follows from that? See the logic that he's using here?
1: Oh, yeah. You're still in the opposite and prove
0: that it's, it's, that it's fallacious. It's That's what he's doing That's one of the great things. A great mathematical proof, Mm. all right.
1: Abraham must have piled up a whole bunch of brownie points.
0: Yep, yep, so he must be justified by works. So,
1: he's going to argue, (laughs) if Abraham
0: was justified by works, as you Jews assume, let's take a look at that, let's evaluate that, let's see if that holds up to Scripture. All right, that's your assumption, that's what you assume to be true, For the sake of argument, let's assume that that is true and work it out and see what happens. So, if Abraham was justified by works, and the Jewish assumption, this is just one quote, I've got other quotes in my notes. So, the Jewish assumption is summarized by a quote out of Jubilees 2310, a 2nd century BC writing. So, this is before Christ, and this is a common idea in 1st century Jewish thinking. Quota is Abraham was perfect in all his deeds, in his works. In other words, he was a righteous worker of deeds. They missed Isaiah and the filthy rags passage. <laughs> Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well pleasing in righteousness. He met the standard. He obeyed the law. Well, before the law, he even obeyed it. That that would be their assumption. Well-pleasing and righteous all the days of his life. Wow. (laughs) That's the point. Exactly. That's the point. Exactly. And if you investigate scripture, you'll find out that that's not true. If you want another quote, I've got another one here. Yeah. Here's another quote from another Jewish writer. You, therefore, Lord, that art the God of the just. In other words, those that have a right standing, those that are righteous has not appointed repentance to the just, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, in other words, they already had it, which have not sinned against thee, but thou has appointed repentance unto me that am a sinner. So they put Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on a different plane. Boy,
1: Jacob really had some things in comparison.
0: Yep, if you read the scriptures, exactly. And that's the point that Paul is making here. So, verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Is there a record of Abraham boasting? He's going to quote what Abraham actually said, or what it refers to in terms of Abraham. And then the last phrase there, but not before God, because the standard is perfection. And he's already established that. So Abraham has nothing to boast in terms of meeting that standard. Yes, he was admirable. Yes, he's to be respected. Yes, he's to be looked up to by Jewish people. Yes, he developed faith to the point that he was willing to sacrifice everything, the closest thing to him. So he is to be admired, and, but not before God in terms of receiving righteousness. That's the point that Paul is making. So not before God. Because the standard, no one can meet. And Abraham, if you study the scriptures, is also a sinner. Now, he doesn't develop that. But he's going to tell us, for what does the scripture say? So let's go to the scriptures and see. And it's very clear. There's a crystal clear passage that tells us Abraham believed God. He didn't work to please God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith. Believe that's the emphasis of the Genesis passage. Now, Paul doesn't bring it out, but some of you have already mentioned, Russ mentioned that he threw his wife under the bus, yep. So there were some failures, there were some lapses in faith, and there's other examples as well. But overall, he grew in faith, and I believe the passage that he's quoting out of Genesis, and we're not going to have time to develop it, but let me just introduce it to you. And next week, we will go into more detail on the Genesis passage. And I want to focus on a particular word, and I'll introduce it here. Uh, we won't have time to get into it as well. It was credited to him as righteousness. I was going to ask you at the beginning, and I've already given it away, what is the word that is used 11 times in chapter 4, another theological term, Another theological concept that is captured by this term. Anyone got it? No? Not justification. We've dealt with that one already. It's a new one. Hmm. It's in this little blue part there. Credited to. Yes, It was credited. Linda loves this word. It's another mathematical term. Okay, notice that same word. Now, it's translated a a little differently, but I'm going to develop it, and I'll introduce it today. The idea of something credited to an account. Notice how often it occurs. Look, it, uh, we see it in verse three. It was credited to him. Verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages is not credited. Same word. Belizomai. We'll look at it as a favor. And then verse five. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited Or the idea of imputation. His faith is credited as righteousness. Then verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man whom God, what? Credits righteousness. This is the declaring of righteousness. It's put to our credit. We'll talk about that and then develop that idea. And if you skip down to verse 8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's the same word. Then verse nine: Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For it says, "Faith was credited, imputed to Abraham as righteousness." How then was it credited? How then was it credited? Yeah, it's a ledger sheet. How then was it credited? Well, he was circumcised, da 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 da, etc. At the end of verse eleven so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to him. What I'm emphasizing, if you count them up, there's 11 of them. Chapter 4, so we have some more. Skip to 22. Therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Again, Lobizomai, verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. You get the idea. This is an important theological term, verse 24. But for our sake. In other words, this is a doctrine that pertains to you and I as well. Not just Abraham. Not just Jew and Gentile in the first century, but because of inspiration, you and I in the 21st century as well. But for our sake also, to whom it will be, credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. So let's take a look at this idea. Here's the Greek word, logizomai. Got the transliteration there up there as well. This is a term that in the culture relates to logic, the use of logic or thinking. And I'll show you some examples. We'll get started on that. In fact, the beginning, if you notice, lagas, what is the lagas? the word and what do we do with logos when we describe the sciences logic biology biology in other words the study of or the reasoning and the thinking or the study of bias or life biology geo studying the earth geology okay anthro anthropos man Anthropology, the study or the idea or the concept of man, on and on and on, all the sciences. Geophysics, well, uh, you don't have all of you there, right? It's a branch of uh, physics. So it's a term relating to reasoning, thinking, or considering. We'll see that. It's also a mathematical term, Linda. So you love this one, I know. And it's also, it was used in mathematics, in other words, this is the logic, or this is the conclusion of these mathematical statements. It's used in the accounting. This is what you were referring to: the the idea of a ledger sheet. So it's a banking term. Somebody puts a deposit into your account. What do you do? That's in the black. Yep. Yeah, you say thank you. So it's an accounting term, and in, in fact, a way of illustrating it would be. When you co-sign on a loan for your children, or in the case of uh, Jacob, your dad co-signed for you, (laughs) the bank doesn't take necessarily Craig's money and puts it into Jacob's account, but in that co-signing, it say, okay, he's good for it, we're going to treat it as if it is there, because his dad has good credit and his dad has good reputation, So we're going to credit you. We're going to give you the loan. We're going to account it to your account as if you had good credit, even though you're still a a young little punky kid. (laughs) Sorry, Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) You, You still, we're going to treat you like we treat your dad. So also when righteousness is credited to us, you stinking sheep. <laughs> We're, I'm going to credit you as if you had the same righteousness as Jesus Christ. I'm going to put that to your credit. I'm going to put it to your account. Now you're in the black, as Russ is talking about. So it's a, it's a term of logic. It's a term of mathematics. It was a term used in the in count accounting. How is it used in the Bible? It's used in similar ways. We have an illustration in Philemon 18. Chapter 118. There's only one chapter, so I just give you the, the verse there. Do you remember the situation? Paul, he encounters Onesimus, the, the, the runaway slave, and in the discussion, Paul leads him to Christ, and there's some growth there. Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, who's the slave owner. And you remember in uh, verse 18, And by the way, this is a different word. It's not logizomai, but it's a related word. Same idea, the idea of crediting to one's account. Paul says, if he owes you anything, in other words, if he, you know, he abused you when he was an unbeliever and he left and he probably took some money and if he owes you anything, Paul says, put it to my account. I'll pay it off. I'm going to make good on it. Credit it to me. I will pay it off. There's a physical example of how this concept is used in that culture. So it's used in a material accounting way, banking way. I gave you the example of co-signing a, a loan. So that's kind of what illustrates it. And we probably ought to just look at let's close on one verse here. Somebody read Acts nineteen twenty-seven and we'll come back and we'll look at some of these others. These are examples of where the word is used. In the sense of, to more in the logical sense or the uh, intellectual thinking sense, to consider something to be true or to regard something as true, or to reason out, maybe mathematically even, that something is true. Notice Acts 19:28. It's kind of in a negative context, but it, it, it conveys the idea. Who's got? It? Who's got it? Anyone want to venture out? what? Uh, 1927.
1: Read it loud. Okay. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be hunted as nothing, and that she may even be posed from her magnificent she who all Asia and the world worship. Okay, I'll have you read it again. Let me give
0: you the context. Remember, Paul, this is at Ephesus. Paul is leading people to Christ. They're throwing away their idols. Ephesus economically dependent on the sale and the trafficking of all these idols and things like that. And uh, now they're worried. The businessmen are worried. Well, Artemis, you know, if she's, if she's a false god and nobody's going to buy our idols anymore, how is she going to be considered, you might say, or what does the verse say? Well, her
1: account may be
0: counted nothing. Yeah, how will she be accounted? Or what will be the conclusion? What will be assumed to be true? She's of nothing.
1: Guess what our bank account is. Everything's going to
0: go down the drain, exactly. Read it again, you can see that.
1: And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great
0: goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Counted as nothing, or considered or regarded as nothing.
1: And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she who Asia, all Asia and the
0: world. Okay, so there it's used in its everyday cultural sense of just regarding something as true, and in this case, as worthless. And we'll see other usages in a spiritual context as well to consider something spiritually We'll also see to be included or numbered with something, referring to Jesus, we'll talk about it. Theologically, let me conclude with this, it's to credit something spiritually. This is how it's used in Romans 4. So it deals with the imputing or the idea of crediting or from God's perspective, God considers us unrighteous people to be righteous. He considers us or credits to our account righteousness. And he's talking about Abraham. Abraham was credited to be righteous. So we'll look at that theologically and some of the other ramifications. We'll look at that next week. Closing thought here. I hope to demonstrate next week, imputation is a wonderful gift. Gift of God's unfathomable grace. Those of us that are like filthy rags are looked upon by imputation or we're credited with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Who wants to close for us? Terry. Father, thank you.
1: I'm together for just so I'll
0: just take that in. Just thankful heart and share. Amen.